Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Sports are starting to come back, and Podcast One Sportsnet has got all the action covered. With tons of different sport co- podcasts, there is something for everyone. Check out the Rich Eisen Show for your daily coverage, the Steve Austin Show for your favorite stories from Steve Austin's amazing career, the Deegans with Metal Militia star Brian Deegan as extreme sports-loving family, plus many more. As sports return, be sure to tune in to all the great podcasts with Podcast One Sportsnet so you don't miss any action. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jonathan Charks, currently of The Ringer, formerly my Real GM colleague, actually, and had a great conversation about where things stand in regards to the bubble, talk about Russell Westbrook's COVID-19 diagnosis, which came out shortly before we recorded uh, during the day on Monday, but then also... What we're interested in in terms of the bubble, the potential ramifications for Houston, Dallas's future and present, the kind of that three through six morass in the Western Conference, and then some of the dynamics in the East, including Philadelphia, Boston, Toronto, and Milwaukee. So covered a lot of ground, a lot of things that I really enjoyed. And conversation is brought to you by Bet Online. Go there and use the Podcast One promo code to get a sign-up bonus when you create a new account. And of course, tell them that you came from us. This episode runs a little bit over an hour. Lots of good stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on. These crazy times we're living in. Absolutely. And um, kind of along those lines, we can start with the news. We're recording this during the day on Monday that um, Russell Westbrook, it becomes another prominent player who will be who has tested positive for COVID-19. We don't know. And this is a, a, a real frustration with the way that this news has been announced is that we don't know how long ago he tested positive. I haven't seen that in his announcement or anywhere else. I mean, players can do whatever the heck they want. But how like just your kind of quicker reaction on how this affects the how this affects the seeding games and then the playoffs. Well, so today is the fourteenth of July, right? Or the thirteenth? Today's the thirteenth. So if it's two weeks, then he would be just getting out of quarantine right when the game is starting, right? Yeah, I think that's about right. And you would presumably he needs a couple, maybe a week or so to kind of get himself back together before the actual playoffs start. Yeah, um, I just, obviously it's a rough timeline. Yeah, I, that that's the part that's concerning to me. It's not whether he will be, you know, quarantined and missing things that are important. It's it's that it takes time to ramp up, and if there's any sort of limitation, you know, cardiovascular that lingers then it gets it gets challenging and Russell Westbrook's health is paramount just like for every player and other person who tests who tests positive here but yeah the the timeline is really tight and I had talked previously like it was something that I've been interested in wrote a piece actually for the athletic about this the group from three to six so the Rockets are four or three games ahead of the Mavericks in the loss column. That doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean a ton, but that is a, a meaningful difference. But then all those teams from the Nuggets, the Nuggets, the Jazz, the Thunder, and the Rockets, they're all really close. And what I found so interesting about those teams is that in a play, in a bracket system, the three through six play each other. 
And so the idea was, you know, that whoever's, you know, we're playing the best is going to benefit and whoever's playing the worst is probably going to play that team. This might loosen it up a little bit. But remember, the Jazz are dealing with a significant injury of a player who's not coming back, period, in Bojan Bogdanovic. And then the Thunder kind of, I think they were playing over their heads a little bit. So I, I think that the Houston, that Houston will be okay. But if it lingers, it becomes a problem. Wait, that was my first thought too. Was you just want to avoid the Clippers at seven? Yes. Right. If you stay in the three to six, whatever matchup, you figure it out. If you go to seven, now you're playing for your life in the first round, right off the right off the jump. So that's the big thing. Is like all those from three to seven. Who can stay out of seven? Who can get into that three through six range? And then on top of that, in three through six, Denver has Jokic. He's not even in the bubble yet. He has right. COVID too. Right, and you know the Jazz guys got it early with um, Mitchell and Gobert, but they've, they've they, a lot of these teams have been affected by COVID in different ways. And the other element of this that I was thinking about when the news came out, but also throughout the hiatus, is that Daryl Morey, justifiably so, really reworked this team around Russell Westbrook's specific strengths and weaknesses. And they're still, you know, they still have a, a really talented foundation. James Harden, you know, an MVP caliber player. They have a lot of logical support players, and they can work within a hardened, like, heliocentric universe. That's not a problem. But you think about all of the other moves they made, Robert, you know, like swap, functionally swapping Clint Capella for Robert Covington. And the key reason that happened, and they went to this four out, but not, but your one that's in is, the, is your point guard system was because of Russell Westbrook. And so. How, like, if it ends up being for, hopefully not for any extended period of time, for a extended period of time, that it's it just doesn't work exactly the same way. And I'm interested to see how Mike D'Antoni and the Rockets adjust to, probably we'll see it in the seeding games, I would assume, to this system without the guy that they built the system to kind of suit. I would say the spotlight now moves to Eric Gordon, which really, it's on him yeah. regardless. He's been bad all year. They need him healthy. They need him at 100%. Like, you can make the argument, is he their best two-way player? I would say there, there are times that he can be. So, like, if we're saying, like, that Harden isn't good enough defensively, I think, yeah, you can make it. I, I think Covington at times can be that. Um, P.J. Tucker at times. But, yeah, I mean, because Gordon could take on more usage. I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. Is that... And the he, other I mean, guys like, aren't scalable. He Mitchell in the playoffs last year too, really yeah. well. Well, and and Gordon Gordon is a great example. He hasn't been used as often uh, as as numerous other guys. Of there's this group of players that I think the hiatus could not will because we just don't know yet could benefit, and that's players who were dealing with or were not fully recovered from injuries. So Ben Simmons has been talked about a lot here. If his back issue is mostly or all cleared up, that's great. But Gordon seems like another clear example of that, of a player who wasn't, totally. who wasn't right all year, but who is a very good player. And like the, the other example of this for me a couple of years ago was Danny Green. Like Danny Green, when that hit last year on the Spurs, it's like, oh crap, is he just old? Did he get old all of a sudden? And he sit, you know, has a summer off and is on the Raptors. And all of a sudden it's like, oh no, he's still Danny Green. Like, if Eric Gordon is that guy again for two months, then the Rockets are in a really good spot because some of their depth issues wash away because they haven't had him and they just don't have that many other capable options on roster. 
Yeah, and the game I always come back to, the one that's really stuck in my mind this year is the one against Utah where he dropped 50 points. It was like totally out of the blue. I think it was no Harden, no Westbrook. But it was like, oh yeah, Eric Gordon can really play when he gets going. Right, and he also fits in their their, their switch-heavy system. He is a stronger guy for yeah, his size. Yeah, he's a freaking tank. Yeah, and so so he, he works he works well there. It seems like they're gonna they're still gonna execute that system. So yeah, I mean. Gordon becomes. I mean, there was this idea of oh, you know, important six man, and all that. I think he becomes a starting a starter and a linchpin at least during the the non Westbrook time. But even I, I think that if he does well, then that could also give Westbrook a little bit more of a of, of kind of like a, a a landing like a landing area. So so he has more range. So if it takes a little bit longer, then the Rockets aren't sunk or anything. Yeah, I think also too. I was running the numbers on the post trade Rockets. They're really not making a lot of threes. Mm-hmm. And, like, they're just missing. Like, Westbrook has, like, his assists were dropping because his teammates were not knocking down threes. And Gordon's the guy you plug him in. Hopefully, you're getting back that, you know, eight three pointers a game with a high percentage clip. Yeah, to to put it to put a number on that, I'll use I'll use per hundred possessions, not per thirty six minutes. Since he got to Houston, Eric Gordon has taken between thirteen and fourteen three pointers per hundred possessions. And before this year, he'd made thirty six or thirty seven percent of those every year. So that's three out of four. And then this year he's down to thirty two. But he, again, that was in less than a thousand minutes. And so I think that Gordon, you're right. I think that he becomes a real a real swing guy on this team and also like it could put the ball in Austin Rivers hands more they could go in a couple different directions here and like they it is this interesting idea that with the Austin Rivers is a great example this Eric Gordon is too of players who at different points in their career have done more but just don't need to because when you have James Harden and Russell Westbrook that's who's going to have the ball in their hands all the time and maybe we start to see I don't think we're going to see democracy when James Harden's in the game because why? But in those other minutes, I think Never. <laughs> I think D'Antoni has an opportunity to try some really different stuff. And it's not like D'Antoni wants to necessarily or needs to run the exact offense that they've run with Harden and Westbrook. It's just he is creative enough and pragmatic enough to understand this is what I need to do with this team. And if you change the constituent pieces, then they can change they can change the way these things work. Yeah, I remember last year, I believe it was Gordon and Rivers after the Warriors lost. They both had quotes about wanting more ball movement, which makes sense because those are the two guys who probably suffer the most in terms of being underutilized in the system. So for them, it's like, all right, let's go. Let's get some shots up move the ball. Yeah, and depending on how they want to run the rotation, I think there could be a lot of minutes and a lot of opportunity. I think opportunity is in some ways more important than, than minutes there also. Yeah. Be the kind of the, the other ripple effect of this is Houston can run some nasty floor spacing units now with with like in where they used to use Russell Westbrook and basically it's like everybody has to be a competent shooter except for Russ. Now you replace him theoretically with a competent shooter could be interesting. Harden could put up some big numbers. It's funny you call him King James because like really he is more of a king than LeBron from how he played basketball. He's really the King James. He's the yeah he's the like the dominator like of, of possessions and and the system and everything like that and, and that's not meant as a criticism I mean Harden Harden has done better it's just a fact yeah Harden has done better in that like insanely like large playmaking usage role than almost anybody and deserves a lot of praise for it but yeah I mean the the way that he, the single domineering force is is really interesting I think we'll see a flashback to that but also that it does raise the concerns for me a little bit. Granted, it's a much shorter sprint than we've seen other years, but there's been a you know a, tr- a trend of Harden pushing a little bit too hard and being a little bit 
being a little bit burned out towards the end of what ended up being their postseason. And it's, I mean, I think that the hiatus, if he's, if he, and I mean, Kelly Eco had that piece, but it's, if, if he's in Yeah, he's in the best shape of his life, Danny. Yeah. Haven't you seen that? <laughs> most, most of these guys are some, somehow. But I mean, I, you can't see that. But like, so if he, if he's, if the hiatus did him good, then I could think, I think Harden could end up being a real, a real beneficiary of this. And, also, I mean, just the idea that you were talking about of like, just don't be the seven of, yes, if we're defining success for this Rockets team as like making the NBA finals or winning the title, they can do it, but it's going to be really hard. But they should be able to, if they can, as long as they can stay above water, they should be able to make it out of the first round okay. And then at that point, you just see where things lie. The one thing I'd be bummed out, I really want to see Houston OKC in the first round. Like, I would just kill for that series. Just, that would be so much fun. Hopefully, I can still happen on that rush thing out. Yeah, it absolutely, it absolutely, well, I think my theory on that has been that the most likely way it happens is as the 4-5, and I think that's still absolutely possible. It could be because basically, if Utah, we'll see where Utah is, but I think Denver, especially when you consider that they're a little bit ahead of these teams in the, like, in overall record. I think that Denver will hold is the three. And then if so then basically all that needs to happen is Utah needs to have a worse record than OKC and Houston, and they're one game ahead, so it's not like that's a crazy ask. Um and one of Utah's best players is is out and will not will not be there at all. So yeah, that would be that would be an interesting series. And that, I I've thought about that one a couple of times because you know the Rockets and Thunder have had some really memorable playoff appearance, especially that series which I actually kind of hated a couple of years ago, but these teams look so different now that it would be fun to see just two very different iterations of the same two franchises go at it. Totally, I mean Chris Paul's revenge, like that's it'd be so much fun. He would fight Westbrook or Harden for sure by the time that series is over, hundred percent. Well, and it's also fun, like with you brought up that because there's so much history between star players and the players on the other team because a lot of them are former teammates and. That would be a really interesting dynamic, and there's the the thing that uh, Nate talks about this a lot of how coaches have specific knowledge and plans of like how to defend their former players because you spend so much time with them and you just think about those sorts of things. And so I could imagine Billy Donovan putting some stuff together to try to capitalize on Russell Westbrook's like weaknesses and his aggressiveness. That would be amusing for sure. Yeah, yeah it's like totally. all these we'll see Donovan's all, real opinion on Westbrook. <laughs> yeah, I mean it would be it'd be fascinating to see like do they put. Stephen Adams on him, like where does it be? It'd be really and like I mean the history that those guys have together. It'd be I, I would yeah I would love to see I would love to see that series. And then the other element of this that I think is and you you kind of got into this before with the don't fall to seven is this might open the door for Dallas a, a larger a larger opening in the door for Dallas to move out of the seven. And I am fascinated with this Mavericks team. I think that they, uh, you know, th- this is early stages of where they are going. But if they can get out of the seven, then that becomes a lot more interesting in terms of potentially making it out of the first round there. Because like, to me, if Dallas faces the Clippers, it could be an interesting series and I would be happy to see it. But I don't think there's much drama in terms of who is winning it. And so I would rather – I'm not saying I would rather see Dallas play a, a, a more beatable opponent than somebody else necessarily. But it would be – it would make me happy to see Dallas in a series that's more that's more in doubt. Let's put that, let's put it that way. Let's, let's talk Dallas for a second because they're pretty interesting. You know, they really changed their team right before the uh, lockdown happened when they lost Dwight Powell. I think that was like Dwight Powell for as great a guy as he is and locker room presence. He was kind of holding them back from their best version of themselves. And that's playing KP at the five, 
Luke at the one, the three wings. And those lineups were really rolling before the lockdown happened. Yeah, and they, amazingly enough, I think that Dallas has the personnel to run that. Now, they can't run it 48 minutes yeah, a totally. game, but they have the personnel to do it. And also, like, that that lineup to me is a lot more compelling against teams that aren't the Clippers that just has so many, they have so many good defenders. But yeah, I think Dallas, they if they can get rolling in this, as I said, they're three losses behind, but that's, you know, it's it's sizable, but it's not insurmountable. And from what I recall, their schedule isn't, it isn't completely insane. I mean, yeah, I mean, they have Phoenix and Sac and Portland and Phoenix. Like, so those are all, those are all teams that we don't expect to make it into the, into the final eight. And then they also worth noting that they play, they do play Milwaukee, but they do so late. Also worth noting, do you know who, do you know who Dallas starts the bubble with? No. The Houston Rockets. So oh, there that, you go. So that could potentially be like you face the Rockets when they're not all the way there, and that could be that could be potentially about yeah. So Dallas, yeah, like I think one of one of the ones that I've toyed around with because they're 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 different in a lot of ways would be a Dallas Denver series. Yes, that would be so much fun. Luca versus Jokic. They they had to play at a classic game like in January where they both just went off. It was so much fun. Yeah, and also like I think both of those teams are poorly suited to stopping the other team, which could be just a, a really a really fun like popcorn series in the first round. Yeah, I was gonna call it the uh, the Fat Man Olympics, but now Jokic's gonna look at Yeah, I mean the or if 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 the skinny Jokic stuff is real, the formerly Fat Man Olympics. Um, totally. Actually, um, with Dallas, I think so. Talking about their lineups, so the lineup we're talking about it's Luca, Seth Curry, Hardaway, Finney Smith, uh, KP. What do you think about Tim Hardaway? Because people around Dallas are talking about him a lot because he has his player option next year. Like, what do you think is a good salary for him going forward? Curious to hear about that. I've been really impressed that he has fit in as a kind of He's a, been good. a smaller, He's been really good. a smaller but steady cog in the starting lineup of a good team. Like, I just didn't think that was his game. But he's defended a little bit better than I thought. He's been more of a complimentary, like, score, kind of lower usage guy than I anticipated, which I think has worked really well. I, I think in a normal universe, I, I think of solid starter money as being, you know, 15 to 18 million a year. I don't think I'd go over that for him because I just don't think he can. I don't, I think if you move him higher in the pecking order, that, that just doesn't suit your team well. Uh, so I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go crazy with it. It's sort of like Danny Green runs into problems of this ilk too. Um, but so what I think with with Hardaway is it gets into this real challenge that Dallas has. I was actually I was writing an off season preview for them this morning. Is that Dallas has this unusual opportunity potentially in 2021, and that's that basically it's that 2021 is the year before Luca gets a raise. That could either be through an extension or that could just be you know restricted for agency signing with Dallas or Dallas matching, whatever. And so basically, the year before that, if they keep their books clear, the Mavericks can actually have space for a max guy. Now, I have no idea who the heck they're going to get. I don't know who that player who that player is or whether it's like in a trade or whatever. But so the, that's the Hardaway dilemma is that if they – let's say he opted out with the intention of re-signing on a longer-term deal. Is Dallas willing to foreclose on the possibility of getting somebody better than Tim Hardaway? Because potentially they're looking for somebody who kind of fills that same role. Like they're looking for maybe somebody more in the Chris Middleton level who I think is a better player than Tim Hardaway. No shame to Tim Hardaway. And if – I think that signing Tim Hardaway, so like if I were Donnie Nelson, I'd be telling Hardaway like, hey, well, you might be a part of our plans, but opting out is a big problem because who else is going to give you the money? And nobody has money this summer. Yeah, I think if you're Hardaway, you're thinking, let me lock in a long-term contract if I can. That's, that's the hope. It's like you're trying to convince Dallas to give you like four years. 
Right, like that's that, in, in, in a normal season, what Tim Hardaway Jr. would be doing right now is opting out, and even if he theoretically, I, I think he would probably get around his player option, but it's worth it even if you get less just to get this, the stability, to get the security. To, that's, the, um, that's the Harrison Barnes deal. Danny, exactly. Dallas, yeah. Exactly. And so there is a chance that Nelson and, and the Mavs just go, fine, we'll do it. I wouldn't if I were them, but I, I kind of get it. And I mean, Hardaway's had a good year. I mean, this, you don't want to knock him for that. And there are circumstances where teams get kind of, they get stars in their eyes and they, they, they look at where things could go and they realize that like, you know, it's the ceiling versus four, like the ceiling of having, well, I mean, that's Dallas, right? The Mavs are the number one team that does that in the last decade. They are. And, and so that's why I think they, that's why I think they won't with Hardaway. Cause it, it, there are circumstances where you, where you do that, you know, if it, the player is, let's say they're better than 75% of the options that you could potentially get. And I don't think Hardaway is that, that I think he's more in the like 30 to 40%, which is quite good actually, way better than I thought. Um, but yeah, I yeah. think that I, I, it's with a lot of these player options, I think that it's just, there aren't other suitors. So uh, the number that I've been using, I'll just have this out there, you know, put on, put on my CBA kind of hat. The number that I've been using even pre COVID was that there'd be between five and seven teams that would have functional cap space. And that's more than the middle level exception. So 10 million plus. And I would say now with COVID, I said it was five to seven before. I think we're getting closer to the five, maybe even four. And a lot of those teams probably wouldn't be super interested in Hardaway. I mean, the Hawks maybe, but they have experience there. Like, and they have yeah, a, they're they Hawks have from the Knicks, two former teams. Yeah, two form, two former teams, and then the Hornets just aren't really at that right place. The Pistons aren't really at that right place. So like, I, I just think that but, you know who. But what about the Grizzlies? Maybe but the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies spent up like they they're a, they are a potential option, but oh, they spent up right. their space the in the Winslow. Justice Winslow yeah, trade. And so I think that I think what happened with him it sort of parallels Derek Favors, in that both of those guys like it looked like they might have constituencies in free agency, but then the teams that looked like logical signing places for them just went a different direction and just closed that door. And so I, I think that what happens is he probably opts in. The, he could theoretically Dallas could kind of appease, and this this would be a kind of a Cubany thing to do, is just say. We can't give you more years, but we can give you more money for next year. Like they could do that. Oh, like a massive one-year contract. Yeah, just like just like instead of giving him seventeen, eighteen million, give him twenty-one, and just be like, hey, man, like that's more money for you. Like they, I could see, I could see them doing that. And the interesting wrinkle there, and this, you could argue this either way for Hardaway, is, and this is why I think t- guys should do that more often. Is that so? The the Lakers are a great example of this. Is that if you sign a one year contract, and it can theoretically include specific forms of like a player option, if you sign a one year contract and you will have a fuller early bird rights at the end of it, you can veto any trade. So then they could theoretically uh, the do that deal. with they could do that with Hardaway and say, hey, if you like, if you do this with us, like like like, we're, hey, we're not going to pay you this year, and you can just opt in if you want. That's fine. But if you opt out and sign a one year deal with us. You're going to be on the team all of next year. You'll get a great opportunity to sell yourself for 2021. Yeah, it's just um, it's funny because like no one was really thinking he would do much this year, but right. he's really become kind of indispensable to this team. Yeah, it's it, it's impressive, and I mean, it, when sometimes you you get into this challenge of like how heavily do you want to use use a prior and use like the other situations and Hardaway 
not a not like a new NBA player. He had the two years with the Knicks, then two years with the Hawks, then a year and a half with the Knicks, and then went to Dallas. And so it's like we hadn't really seen this guy in there at all. And yeah, it's true. Like Rick Carlisle is the best coach he's ever had. Playing with Luka makes things easier. This is a little bit lower usage for Hardaway than he's seen since his early days. And that makes it easier to be successful because he can you could focus on doing less things. But he's done really well. And I so I think that the the Mavericks are they're kind of in a good position because they he can't he can't leverage them into anything but they, I think they still want like they still want to reconcile this relatively cleanly because there's a chance that they'll just want to bring him back in 21. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I what do you buy the idea of like if we give him a contract and then like somehow we can get Giannis to just trade him later, whatever. Like don't even worry about the cap space until they actually need it. Do you buy that line of thinking? I do. In certain circumstances, I mean, so the the real challenge there, and I, I've dealt with this, you know, being local, the, my, the closest team to be geographically is the Warriors, and it seems like that's part of the theory of the Andrew Wiggins, the D'Angelo Russell sign and trade, and then the Andrew Wiggins one is like, hey, we kind of need salary if we're going to do this big trade. The challenge there is that the other team has to kind of want what you have. You know, like in the Warriors' circumstance, it's different because they weren't going to have cap space under any circumstance. But in Dallas's case, you'd rather have cap space because cap space can be anything unless you get the player on a value contract. You know, if it's like Marcus Smart, if it ends up being that the player ends up being way better than the contract that they sign, then sure, yeah, that, then you're in a great spot. Then you get you get everything that you want. But my instinct is that Hardaway's not going to get squeezed enough to make that happen, but it is possible. Well, I'm just saying more in terms of like, okay, let's say they find Hardaway and like, let's say some miracle, they can convince Giannis to come to Dallas. Then maybe, couldn't they just be like, we'll trade Hardaway and a pick to some team with cap space and they'll they'll eat the contract for a pick. That would be kind of the logic. Yeah, and that's that's actually, uh, so I've been thinking about that from Dallas's perspective with the mid-level exception as well, is that if you want to go on the really kind of like basic focus on the primary goal first, idea would be don't sign anybody for the mid-level for more than a year because then you can maintain this next cap size. But if you feel that the market is just squeezing these guys, that they're just not getting what they deserve, well, then having a good player signed for $10 million a year isn't a bad thing. And so you can kind of and, – and there's this old truism with the, with the, like, with the NBA like in, the, in the modern era, but like over a long time within the modern era, which is like – Teams find a way. If you need to clear a little bit of cap space because a great player says they're going to come, you'll figure it out. Whether yeah. that's whether totally. that's you know the all the machinations for the Lakers to get Anthony Davis while still maintaining a little bit more flexibility, or the like all the stuff the Clippers did. There are a bunch of I mean going back to the Miami three guys, like all sorts of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to the Nets. So yeah, I think Dallas if if. If they have to make it work because somebody like Giannis says they want to go there, they will. Like, that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. And I, for Dallas, they always, before, they always did it the other way. They said, we'll create the cap space. But then nobody wanted to sign up because the team kind of sucked. Right. So it was like putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's true. And then there's the other example. Like, I mean, you could go as extreme as the Knicks here, too, where it's like, if you want players to actually want to join your team, you need to have good talent. Now, the the thing that the Mavericks have that those Knicks teams never did is Luka Doncic. And that, that makes it a real... Well, here's the question, though. What I wonder, too, is Luka. I wonder, would guys really want to come play there, given how much he holds the ball, right? If Luka's the point guard, he's going to be the man on this team, unless it's like a Giannis-type player, right? 
So how appealing is that to another star to play with the guys that hold the ball the whole game? I, I think it really it really depends. I think that I think that there are some guys who kind of understand what they are and will yeah. be and would be totally cool with that. But you're right that there is you know like especially the all star caliber guys that that they would rather be the guy on a team. Then, then play with Luca. But I think what's so so then maybe you start to get in other places. And the other thing that has to scare Dallas is the best free agents in 2021 are all in good situations right now. So like Kawhi, it's not just like you need to be the best or Giannis. Let's say you don't have to be the best situation of the free agent spots. You also have to be better than the team they're currently on as an overall package. That could be maybe they want to be in the city or whatever else it could be. But that. You know, getting into that, but one of the guys I wanted to throw out at you, like I've been thinking of Dallas as a potential destination for kind of the second tier guys that are quite good, but just aren't Max Cal, like aren't aren't the you know the megastars, and so like I think Drew Holiday would be a really Whoa, interesting. Yeah, that would be perfect. Oh like, my gosh! Yeah, so for like sure. it, and and that sort of player I think will be available, like the the Drew Holiday or maybe like a Gordon Hayward. Or Oladipo is going to be a free agent in that class if he doesn't get an extension this fall. And I think that – or actually, he could get it into the season. Um, I think that there will be players of that caliber available who make sense with who make sense with the Mavericks. And so, yeah, I don't think they're going to get the Paul George or the Giannis. I don't think anybody outside of their current teams is. But – I think that Drew Holiday in particular would be just a, a fun, nasty fit and help, you know, like, I mean, perimeter players generally aren't that important defensively, but I think Drew is one of those exceptions, and we've seen that in the playoffs before. No, I would say with Dallas, the number one thing I want to see them do, which, I mean, I guess hard to find these guys, like, I want that big wing defender to guard Kawhi, to guard LeBron. I, I mean, there's not many those guys out there. But they just got to find that big body, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, you know, 225, 235-pound wing. Does that player exist they can get? I don't know, but they got to find that guy. Yeah, I, I, think that, I think that you're right. And those, those players are often held by good teams and never let go because you never know if you're going to need them again. Yeah. And I think that it's – yeah, it, it's interesting. Like I, I think that, that Dallas kind of wants what a lot of other people want, but they're, they're pretty well-suited well to potentially selling somebody. Like, again, that's, those players are generally not trying to be the guy, you know, unless we're the Paul Georges and the Kawhis of the world. But it's – yeah, I, I, think, I think Dallas – like, they have a sales pitch. And I'm interested, like, one of the storylines of the, the – basically the year, let's say – between now and the 2021 offseason, we don't know when that's going to start because we don't know what's happening for next season, is the most interesting suitors of talented free agents that we don't already know, like that are, are there, are these young teams. And it's less like, would Drew Holiday rather play on the Mavericks or the Pelicans where he is right now or some other team? And we're going to, I think a lot of that's going to be determined by not only how those teams succeed, but how they play. You know, like what kind of a system do they have? How does their coaching work? Totally. And, so, and, and, and so, like, yeah, Drew's a, Drew's a test case there. And I'm really interested, you know, Dinwiddie could fit in a lot of these circumstances as well. Um, yeah, I mentioned Gordon Hayward and Victor Oladipo, potentially Danny Green, depending on what happens with the Lakers. So, yeah, I, I, I wonder how Dallas situates themselves, how New Orleans does. Um, Atlanta could be in that conversation, too. Memphis could be in that they situation, could. too. So all those teams, you know, they're not in glamour markets, though they, I mean, a lot of them have... Histories, you know, like have won championships or have been competitive before. 
but what do what do those kind of players want and what you know what what situation are they most excited about and then you have the the other dominoes of like all the other big guys at the at the front of the table kind of how that all ripples down yeah i guess one more thing i was gonna ask about the mavs what do you buy this theory i've been thinking about this like would it maybe make more sense for dallas to play the clippers this year so luca gets a first-hand taste of like championship level defense like going up against Paul George and Kawhi for seven games, maybe that's like more long-term beneficial for him to see how high the bar actually would be a champion, as opposed to like beating up on Denver seven years. He's played high-level competition before, but you're right that that wasn't really against like American Wings. Though that wasn't as much of the. That's the one thing we we want to see against, right? Yeah, as a, that six-day Paul George type defense. Yeah, you could you could I argue that, that looks like you could argue that the best case scenario would be to get like to the six or the five, and then face one of those teams in the second round. Like if they got, let's say they got true, to the yeah. six, and then we had that Dallas Denver series, and they won it. But if if you didn't have a guarantee, obviously that they were going to win that. Yeah, there's that's a totally reasonable tact to take. Is that there would be you know even if you don't get through a series of knowing this is where the bar is. I think that that could be really good, not only for Luca, but for Kristaps Porzingis. Like, he hasn't gone through this either, and I think that could be good. Yeah, I mean, no, has he been in the playoffs? No, he hasn't. No, right? no, neither yeah. one of them, neither one of them has. Plenty more to talk about with Jonathan, but first a message from Bet Online. As sports keep coming back, so do your chances to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, Bet Online. With NASCAR, Formula One, and English Premier League in full swing, there is no shortage of ways to get in on the action. So visit Bet Online or use your mobile device and use the Podcast One promo code to receive your new welcome bonus. And of course, tell them you came from us. If you need more, Bet Online has simulated Madden NFL games, NBA 2K, and UFC happening every day live for you to watch and wager on. And as sports get closer to returning, Bet Online has futures odds on everything you can imagine season win totals, division odds, and even odds on every league championship. So visit Bet Online or use your mobile device to join now and make sure to use that Podcast One promo code to receive your new welcome bonus and let them know that you came from us. So check out Bet Online, your online wagering experts. You wrote a good piece for, on, on the Clippers for the Ringer last week. And what you focused on, and I, it, it makes sense that we talk a lot about Kawhi Leonard because Kawhi, you know, finals MVP last year, best player in the playoffs last year. But Paul George, not only for legacy purposes, but as a fit of a second banana, is a really challenging, compelling like story here that could end up swinging a championship. Yeah, I mean, Paul George, just in terms of 6'8", elite shooter, multiple defender, He's pretty much like if you were drawing up, based on the article is about, if you were drawing up a number two in a lab, it would be Paul George, right? Because any number one you have, Paul George can play off them really, really well. And then it's like, okay, if he has the number two game, this is really his first chance to be a true number two. So how's he going to do in that role? Like, now he's kind of like Clay Thompson almost. How can he do? Can he have like a Clay Thompson like playoff, basically? Right. And the, the skill set is there also something you want in number two. And you brought up uh, in the piece, you talked about the hybrid of Clay Thompson and Scotty Pippen, like something that Scotty could do. Clay does this too, but in a different way, is when you need them to step up and take on a larger role, they can't. And a number two isn't just about complementing the number one. It's about being able to to forge ahead and do things on your own too. And I think that Paul George is a really good fit there. And when you think about not the game to game, I think that the Clippers, you know, it was this season, it was always about what they could be defensively, not what they were, you know, each game. But that's, I mean, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, both guys have been, have dealt with injuries, especially George with his shoulder stuff as recently as, you know, about a year ago. 
So I, I think that they fit together really well on both ends of the floor. And also, some, I mean, wing size guys, we just, just kind of got into this a little bit with the Mavericks. You can put a lot of different lineup combinations around them. And that, and having two players who can do a lot with the ball in their hands, can sh- can both shoot reliably, but are also just devastating defenders, then Doc can just, if he wants to go big, sure, they've got, they've got options there. They've got Marcus Morris, they've got Zubats, they've got Montrez Harrell. But if they want to go smaller, those guys, I think you could, you, you'd be totally fine against almost everybody having Kawhi at the four, Paul George at the three. And then you can, you could get better floor spacing. And that Paul George is really important to making that happen because if they didn't have him, they would be throwing a lot of guys into the fire who don't really have that size. Yeah, I mean, because like when you're building lineups, you're always trying to find size and shooting. And George, like, that's what makes such a good piece is like anything makes sense with Paul George on the floor. And then, I, I remember I, I got the idea of watching one of those Lakers Clippers games where George just went off like 35 points. And it's like, a, if he's hitting his shots, what are the Lakers going to do? Who can they go? Who can they put on Paul George? LeBron can't do it. He's too old. Davis can't do it. It's not one of his games. All their wings are too small. It's like George is the guy the Lakers have no answer for if he's going off. Right. And and I've been fixated on the like kind of the Paul George, Kawhi versus LeBron and AD stuff because of the potential of a conference finals series for them. Something that Ben Golliver brought up a couple weeks ago in this podcast was the idea that this other weird kind of quirk of this is that the Clippers theoretically benefit from the bubble because they were going to face probably in the conference finals the lakers who would have had home court and would have probably had home for court sure. in clippers for games sure. because of the way the city of la totally. is structured and so now they get full-on neutral site games and i think that could benefit the clippers as well we don't know exactly how that's going to shake out but yeah i think that the clippers personnel and their flexibility and that's true that was true even before avery bradley opted out of the bubble before rajon rondo got hurt but I think that they – it's not a guarantee because the Lakers are a damn good team. But I do think that, you know, if knowing what we know right now, if I were to give them a seven-game series in a neutral site, I would give the Clippers the advantage. Yeah, I think too with George, like I wouldn't say he's a historically great player, but he has historically great talent, right? Yeah. He just needs that moment. He needs that game for Oklahoma City. Like, like what is Paul George's best playoff moment, would you say, right now? Yeah, it's weird because they had they had some he had some good series against like LeBron teams, but they never won. So um, yeah, and like, is I mean, it beating I, Carmelo? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it might it might be that. I mean, I think about off the top of my head. I remember Paul George having good series also against that Raptors team, but they lost that series too. Like, and and I, I'm excited not yeah. only for for Paul George as the second best player on a good team. I'm excited for Paul George to be on a team that is actually favored against good teams in series. Like that's something we haven't seen as well. And, and I mean that Pacers team that imploded down the stretch like that, that could have been something different, but like they've run into buzz saws and I don't really blame him for that, but you're right that it, that does limit the moments. And then you have other things like what happened last year when they lost to Dame in the, Blazers. I was going to say the Dame shot, that's probably his most famous moment is yeah. giving that shot up and saying like, after the game. I think, I think that's very fair. But I'm thinking like realistically, like if the Clippers are going to be a dynasty, which is definitely possible, in three years, we could look at Paul George very different historically. Because if that happens, that means Paul George had some like incredible series, incredible games, and he can do it. He just has to do it. Right. And I think that there is a temptation to 
criticize players who aren't quite good enough to be the best player on a championship team as like, um, you know, whatever. Then there are a bunch of different ways you can do this. And for whatever reason, I mean, Clay is wonderful at what he does. And I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate. He is such an important part of what makes the Warriors work. But sometimes if we're talking legacies and credit and all that, sometimes it's better to be the number two on a, on a championship team than to be the number one on a conference finalist. For sure. I mean, at a certain point, you want to win, right? And I think, like, and there's a lot of guys who make more sense as number twos than as number one. That's like the whole, like, Chris Middleton discussion. Yeah. Where, okay, he's not the best number one, but he's a better number two than a lot of number ones. So what's more valuable? This depends. Right. And, and also, I think George deserves credit, though technically he was traded, and so he didn't have that. But to be willing to go along with it, you know, like, to, like it, is, it is something fundamentally different to be... You know, he's on, I'm not going to call it his hometown team. He's from Palmdale and LA is pretty far, though they are the closest teams to him. But to to go where you wanted to go and to be as great a player as Paul George, like before he got hurt last year, I think I had Paul George number three in my MVP ballot. Like that's how good he was. He was awesome. That's how good he was last year. And to say, no matter how good you are, as long as Kawhi Leonard is healthy, you're going to be the second best player on this team. That takes, that takes a lot of sacrifice. I mean, it's just one of those things like, Few players with as much talent as him have the self-awareness to be like, you know what? I'll be the number two. It's cool. And what's all, the other fun thing, too, is if it becomes a Milwaukee Clippers finals, for all the Kawhi versus Giannis talk, PG versus Chris Middleton was an awesome matchup. I'd love to see that. Right. Yeah, that series would be fascinating for a, a bunch of different reasons. But yeah, you bring up how the stars and, – and also in that series – the best players, by and large, would match up against each other. You know, so you would you would have a lot totally. of a lot a lot of that squaring up. It would also, I mean, think about Patrick Beverly and and Eric Bledsoe likely spending a lot of time on each other. So how many how many little scuffs and potential fights would we see? <laughs> and like, yeah, I would love I would love to see a Clippers Bucks series. I mean, I'd love to see a Lakers Bucks series too. I mean, it's not 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 to knock that, but I agree with you that there is a. Um, that like the Clippers are fascinating against all of the other great teams. And I also think that given if they're at full strength or close to it, they're just too good to be that interesting. And I mean that in a good way for them against any of the inferior teams like Clippers Nuggets. It's just like, okay, you know, I think, I don't think the Nuggets can I mean, stop the Clippers from what they're doing. It'd be interesting some, a little bit, but I don't think it'd be like, com- I don't think it'd be like feisty or, you know, you don't get what I'm saying? Well, two games I watched, it was right before the break. It was Clippers Nuggets and Clippers Rockets. Those last two games they played where they just destroyed those teams. And they were over in the first half of those games. It was like, we're going to lock up. We got the talent. It's a wrap. They won by like 40 points in both games. I remember that Clippers-Rockets game. So that was at um, that was at Oracle. I think that was before the Warriors-Raptors game that was the only real game that Steph Curry played when he returned from, from his injury. And so, like, I mean, got like I, I got to Chase Center early. I was really excited. I got there, and then it was like the game was over in ten minutes. And and it, I remember the game. It wasn't like the Clippers are playing that awesome. It was just like we're so talented. When we get our game going, y'all cannot stop us. We can stop you, and it's a wrap. It was just like oh. it felt very much like those Warriors teams when KD were like, we're in control. There's nothing you can do. We're bigger, better, and more skilled than you. Forget it. Well, and that's the new story of the regular season is teams, and it's funny that it's the Clippers who, like, haven't done anything as a unit, that know they don't need to use their fastball every time out there. They can, you know, they can, they can get guys out with other pitches, but they have it when they need it. And I think we've seen that a little bit with the Lakers, but I think part of the reason the Lakers are going to have the number one seed is that they, they pushed it more often. 
And the Clippers. Well, see, I don't know. I wouldn't you say with AD at the five is not used that often for their fastball. Yeah, I, I guess. But I'm but I'm also not sure they have enough wings to make that work. You know, like there there have been a couple things. I think Prada talked about this too in a recent in in one of his uh, one of his pieces about how like. AD at the five is really exciting offensively, but there are kind of, there's some things that actually work a little bit better when he's not there. Um, so I think I think you're right though. But but the big thing, the difference between those two is that like the Lakers just they don't have the other guy. So like, I think AD's best of the five and LeBron's best of the four. But then I guess you're probably Danny Green, KCP, and I mean, is it Caruso? Like is that is that like they they just don't have Caruso the guy. or Kuzma. Or Kuzma, I just don't like his his game fit with that team. But yeah, I, I just think they're one they're one guy short. Now they're still a, a damn good no, it's, team. It's, it's funny you talk about with their fastball. I think back to that Houston Golden State series last year, where it was game one. It was death lineup and like Tucker. It was like whatever. Let's stop messing around. Let's get to the business. The whole year was just meaningless. Yep. Let's get our five guys out there and play ball. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm I'm so pumped that it's going to be a short sprint for the final because I'm hoping that. You know, with, given everything everything else, with those caveats as as you'd expect, that they're not going to get as burned out. And the other, like the huge, huge thing that I, I get a better sense of this because a you know talking to media members, but also players talk about this pretty openly if you ask them, is that they're not going to be traveling and yeah, the atmosphere is going to be really different. But like that takes a lot out of you, and you can think it's even more draining in the regular. So you they won't have the accumulation of travel in the regular season in the same respect, and then. They're in the but most of them are in the bubble now. Some are coming in soon. Once they get to that point, like there'll be other challenges and they'll be you know stir crazy and like getting sick of each other and everything else. But the all of the the challenges of like wake up times and you know just traveling can be hard. Like all that stuff being stabilized, I think that's going to be a I think it's going to be a massive change. That it's not going to benefit everybody uniformly, but I think it will be a big. I think it will it will be a big help for certain guys. Yeah, I think for sure, if, which is like the world's biggest, biggest if, if you can get to round two, round three, and not only elite teams left, I think they'll all be locked in at that point. It won't matter that they're in the bubble. Their families will be there too at that point. And it'll just be some serious business. It's just getting to that point, anybody getting sick. That's, you know, my gosh, who knows? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, – do, do, oh, I'll give you the choice. The two other things I want to talk about are the bottom of the West and the East. Which do you want to do first? Let's do the top of the East. I'm working on an East piece that's going to come out tomorrow, I think. Awesome. So let's talk about that. Okay. So do you, want to, do you want to set the table or do you want me to? Okay. So basically what my piece is about, I was looking at the three teams who I think made interesting moves right before the lockdown. So Milwaukee adding Marvin Williams, Miami adding Iguodala, and then Philly adding all those guys. Like, let's talk Philly. Philly is a really interesting team now. I think with Ben coming back, like I was talking to someone today about this. Philly is this is the deepest Philly team ever, right? In the Ben Joel era, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, it's it's not the highest bar, but I would agree with you. Especially, I mean, getting Glenn Robinson and Alec Burks basically for nothing. Alec Burks, yeah, and Shake Milton coming on. We'll we'll see. The great if, Shake Milton, SMU's finest. SMU's finest, and 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 Matisse Thibel, and I mean, if if Al Horford can be better than the Al Horford we saw in Philadelphia, then that becomes a clear uh, becomes a, a, a pretty clear yes. Yeah, and I think it's all actually your former Warriors guys. So how do you think – so, like, realistically, right, Birch is probably – I'm thinking it'll be Shake Milton starting with Simmons, with Richardson, Harris, Embiid, and off the bench, Horford, Burks, Robinson. And that leaves Steibel and Korkmaz as your ninth and tenth guys. Like, that's a legit roster. Yes. Which they have never had. 
Yeah, and I think that Burks overlaps overlaps too much for with Simmons to my liking, but you just don't need to play I think them together. So, yeah. You don't need to play them Burks together. That's totally fine. Guard, sure. And then and then Robinson could fit in. I think he fits in really well as somebody who can defend. He's not an amazing defender, but he did better this year than I anticipated and can generally put the ball in the basket enough that you have to defend him. And so the Sixers like it's this really funny it's this really funny element with them that they have like these ball dominant players and then they they just haven't ever had the right ecosystem and i think somebody like Glenn Robinson if he you know as long as he hits more than 29% of threes he hit in the limited amount of time in Philly as long as he's hitting those shots i think that he'll be he'll be a, a nice fit and with Phil, with with Philly how like th- you talked about this as the deepest team and i think that's a really good way to to start this but then that gets into the question of how is Brett Brown going to close games? Is it going to be hot hand? Like who's looking good? How do you put together? How do you put together these lineups when it's high stress? And remember, for the Sixers, it's probably going to be high stress from the jump because they're going to. I mean, I think they're going to probably move ahead of the Pacers. You know, like they're tied ostensibly for the five six. But let's say congratulations, you don't have to face the Celtics in the first round. You get to face this Miami Heat team that's nasty. I'm excited for that series. Miami Philly would be an awesome first round series. I'm it, really it would be, one. and and the stressors that each of those teams puts on the other. Like that was something. Uh, I think it was in the early days of the hiatus. I was talking about it with somebody about how Miami and Philly. Like this came up a little bit when we were talking about Dallas and Denver, but that was more offensively. They're really well situated to making the other team just like suffer. Like it's just with the like. I mean, but I think. Would it be Jimmy versus Ben? Would they be guarding each other? And then you have, yeah, right? I think, I think so. I think, I think you, I think you'd almost definitely have Ben guarding Jimmy and then probably have Jimmy guarding Ben. Maybe throw a few other different guys out there, but Embiid and Adebayo are kind of the same type of thing where like each guy is kind of a matchup challenge for the other. Um, Yeah, I was thinking Embiid has the edge there because I feel like Bam is just too small to guard Embiid down low and then Embiid can just play off Bam. Yeah, but but Miami, but Miami is, is a really great team at zoning and trap, at zoning and trapping and, and bringing a second guy. So I think they could just, I think Embiid could have a ton of turnovers in that series like he'll but get see, that's what makes that's what makes like shake milton chronic so important because now you have that extra three and d guy out or just three guy out there right if you bench horford and you're going Embiid, simmons richardson harris milton do they have enough space because there was that game i think in like november where miami zoned philly and beat them real bad yeah. right so now do they have enough space with those three guys shooting threes for Embiid and simmons i'm not sure Maybe. Well, and then also, can the Sixers in some of those lineups can they defend well enough? Because, like for me, if Philly can get out and run, if they can, if they can get enough stops to get the feedback loops to run transition, they're, they're going to wreck a lot of teams because they're just so good when they can do that well. It's just whether they can do that enough to make it work. And Miami, that's what concerns me about the Heat, and part of why I'd love to see that series is. I don't trust Miami. I, I, people like, I mean, there was times, especially because the defense was doing so well because t- opponents were missing every shot early in the season. Against certain teams, I'm actually more worried about Miami's offense than their, like, way more worried about their offense than their defense. And if they, if We're Miami speaking can't. Speaking of, like, speaking of Miami's offense, Iguodala was bad for them when he, he was. Like, he got that big money, and then it's like, wait a minute. If you have Jimmy out there and you have Bam out there, there's not much space in the fourth Iggy to do anything. Like, what's he doing out there with those two guys in the lineup? Iguodala offensively so defensively i think that he was the the a very important part of what the warriors did so well and like a part important part of maybe the best lineup in nba history but offensively he and draymond in particular benefited so much for sure from being the best of all time yeah from from not having to do what they would have to do on basically any other team 
And I think we're going to see, I mean, we saw Draymond struggle with that on a much weaker Warriors team this year, but, and we saw Iguodala struggle with it on Miami. Like there were points where he's just like, I just want to sit in the corner and do nothing. And like, you can't do that against most teams. Like they're just not going to guard you. And Iguodala is a smart passer, but that requires the ball to actually move and everything, everything else, um, offensively can just kind of grind to a halt. And so I wonder how that's going to all fit. But I mean, they do have Duncan Robinson and he's nasty. And also Spo and the coaching staff has had a long time to think about this. And like, I think that's, that's actually something I haven't written about this because I think you would want quotes. So if anybody who like the, the writers who talk with people a lot could get this, I think that there's a weird benefit of going into the bubble with everybody kind of having stable rosters after the trade and trading deadline. So coaches have had a long time to think about what worked and what didn't. And so what sort of things shift based on getting, because coaches don't usually, you know, you're driving game by game, you know, week by week to just like basically get your players through it. And then it's the playoffs where the tactics really start. Well, now we're going to get that playoff shift as well, but we've also had, you know, three months of lead time. And so there's like, Mike Budenholzer, think about Marvin Williams' place in the rotation differently now than he would have if we'd rolled straight through. Yeah, and speaking of going back to your saying with um, guys who benefit from the time off, I think Miami gets Tyler Hero back. He'll be back and ready to play. And I could see him taking Iguodala's minutes because he can shoot. Yeah, I, I could see it. And, and Iguodala, like, I could see him being important in a small role rather than being important in a big role. Like, that, that could end up being yeah, the way so this shakes out. What happened, if you look at the numbers, Miami found a lineup that worked. It was Dragic, Robinson, Iguodala, Crowder, Olytic. Sure. And Iguodala was like the worst shooter of the bunch. But unfortunately, when you have Jimmy and Bam there, it just doesn't leave too many spots for him. And one thing I was wondering, maybe we'll see it in this year's playoffs, maybe there's a ceiling for a Jimmy Bam team. Because if your best two players can't shoot threes, it really kind of boxes you in the way you build the rest of your roster. Yeah, and you know what other team was a good test case for that? The Philadelphia 76ers. Right, and they're going to play each other. It's the, it's the South Beach version of Philly, almost. Almost. I mean, there, there are similarities there are similarities to it. And it's funny because Jimmy, Ben, Bam, and Joel are such different players. But if you really strip it down to the basics of like who has the ball in their hands, what do they do well, what don't they do well, there are these like broad, like fuzzy similarities that make them similarly easy to defend that might be a real challenge. Yeah, and I mean, I think, too, the fun thing with this series, like, whoever loses, the amount of shade that's going to be thrown at them is going to be epic. Like, if Jimmy loses to Philadelphia after all the messy talks, whew. Right, and also you think about how much both of those teams have thrown into putting it together. Now, in Miami's case, that was giving up picks and, you know, really hamstringing, hamstringing their team. Well, not hamstringing it long term, but kind of like committing to Jimmy and Bam as the foundation for at least a little while. And then for the Sixers, I mean, this team is going to be hilariously expensive starting next season. And so one of those teams isn't making it out of the first round. Now, Philly doesn't get out of the six. It might be that both of those teams don't make it out of the first round. And then I, I think we'll, we'll talk about the Bucks a little bit, but I think you brought up Miami Philly as being a series you're interested in. The one that's the like in the Eastern Conference is the just dream for me is Toronto Boston because oh, for sure. For sure. they both. Awesome. I, I I love the way those teams execute. I think that they're really weird matchups for each other. And they also like. I think both of them could see this as like the like establishing themselves at a, at a different level within the conference, which would be like. I mean, Toronto if they if they make it to the conference finals, losing their best losing their best player for nothing, it would be a, like just a remarkable accomplishment. 
Have we ever had them play each other in the playoffs? I think not, right? Toronto, Boston. That's never quite happened yet. I believe like I believe it years. is not. I I I don't think that I don't think that it has because Toronto got knocked out by got knocked out by Cle- Cleveland. By Cleveland. Like, yeah, by LeBron every year. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't. That would be. A, I mean, that's a fun series. I love the like Toronto Boston for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so another one where I'd be very interested in how they match up specifically. So I mean, Jason Tatum has been just this breakout, especially around February on, like where he was taking all these off the dribble threes. But Toronto has they have strong guys that are big that can make life hard on him, and see, like Siakam and Ochi Ananobi. And also both teams that have a lot of really smart defenders. And so, but what I've been fixated on in that series, like I just, I just recently recorded with Jared Weiss, and we didn't talk about this as much because I want to, I, I mean, we'll see if the series actually happens. But Toronto, like, so Boston has this weakness. I'll start, I'll, I'll frame it from Boston's perspective. I've thought for a long time that Boston has this weakness against like these dom- the dominant wing scores that they just don't really have the right guy for. Well, I mean, Jalen Brown's done a better job. That's not really what Jason Tatum's best at, though. He did do a good job in a couple late games, including against Kawhi. I think that was in March. But Toronto doesn't have that guy either. So then it's like Boston has this defensive weakness that Toronto can't capitalize on. And then I I think that could end up being fascinating. The thing I'm curious about, I look at it like, so with Tatum, obviously he elevated up this year. But it doesn't feel like he's ready to be the primary playmaker yet. I think he's at like two and a half, three assists. That's probably still a few years down the line for him. So that means either Kemba or Haywood's got to move the ball against some elite defense. And Kemba has never really been in a big-time series. I'm curious to see if he can be even stay on the floor against Toronto or if they can get him out the lineup by attacking him on defense. Yeah, and I mean, Boston's going to ha- – you're right. They're going to have to get it from other places. And remember that those those other guys are going to be defended by good guys as well. Like if it's Kemba against Fred Van – like if Fred Van Vliet's getting into him, just like, you know, from – from half court or from beyond half court on every possession and Kemba's knee isn't perfect. Like that could be a challenge. And then, Oh great. Okay. Fred Van Vliet's not on the floor. It's going to be, Ky- it's going to be Kyle. Lowry Lowry. Now. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's nasty. And I, yeah, I'd be really interested in that series. I think both teams have some challenges offensively, but then, I mean, just the, the intensity. And also, I mean, Brad Stevens was the was the coaching darling, and he deserves a lot of it. I mean, the Celtics have been this wonderful defensive team in the regular season, basically every season, and I think they've outperformed their personnel partially because Brad Stevens is one hell of a coach. But Nick Nurse over the last year and a half has done an unbelievable job. I mean that the the Raptors. He's coach of the year, right, Nick Nurse? Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely for me. I mean, yeah. he, he's coach of the year. Yeah. And he was the coach of the playoffs last year, not just because they won the championship, but a lot of the the wrinkles that they threw in there. And to be able to execute the way that they have and run as many different things with less, more limited personnel than last year. Not that they're bad, but like just you know, no Kawhi, no Danny Green, and just rolling the way that they have is is impressive. So like Brad Stevens, you know, get into a big series and I mean, especially when you consider in series adjustments, I think Nick Nurse has been, you know, it's a smaller sample obviously, but I think Nick Nurse has been better than Brad Stevens. So that's another, you know, like two golden boy coaches that would have a lot a lot totally. of reputational stuff on the line, but also a lot to give each other in terms of adjustments and challenges. I would say from Toronto's perspective, I guess the question is like who's going to be your third scorer, right? Yes. So you have Siakam Lowry Who's the third guy? Because last year you had Siakam, Lowry, and Kawhi. Obviously, Kawhi's not there. 
And I think that's almost like the bigger thing. It's like, they, obviously you can't replace Kawhi, but you have a primary score more or less in Siakam now. But who's your thir- your secondary and third guy beyond Lowry? Is it Van Vliet? Kind of OG, not Gasol. Is it Van Vliet? Does he have to be the guy? I mean, Van Terrence Vliet might get like, some of it. Have a third guy. Norm Powell might get some of it. Um, then they can also do some through system, you know, like just just like running running things to get Ibaka and Gasol and other guys open. And we'll see how healthy all those guys are. I mean, the Raptors. I mean, one of the most impressive parts of their season is that they weren't particularly healthy, and they were they still dropped forty six and eighteen. Uh, had you know, if we're going with non clean the glass point differential, they're six and a half six and a half point margin on everybody. And so yeah, if they if they can be closer to right, that would be huge for them. And and I think that so the other the the other thing is as as much as I enjoy Toronto and Boston, I have real trouble seeing either one of those teams knocking off the Bucks if all things are equal. Yeah, I just I wonder about Bud though. Like I think they can make Bud make adjustments, and some like to me that's the question for Milwaukee. I think Milwaukee has all the pieces. They just got to be deployed properly and quickly. I feel like even last year in that in that uh, conference finals. Bud just seems like he's very conservative. I mean, this is a this is. is a pretty wide knock on him, but I think it's a fair knock. He doesn't make moves very quickly. Like I think to me, the one is most glaring was when they didn't start Brogdon until like game five. Not because they didn't have to, just because oh we're doing something about it, it's fine. But it's like don't waste a game on throwing your best players. It was that game four. They kept him on the bench for no real reason, just to keep keep him on the bench. It was like, but there's no time for this. Like you got to use every game you have. And to me, that's where from Milwaukee is. Is, is Bud going to be aggressive? Because in their regular season, they don't have to. Yeah, and it also could be a, a real challenge, depending on how much they get from the two-three winner. Of sure, I mean, a seventy-sixer series or a lot of those would be challenges. But like, whoever comes out of the Western Conference is going to be so tested. Is going to just have gotten so much work. And they'll be ready. And, you know, they won't be rested, but, I mean, nobody's going to be rested. And the Bucks, I, I think that the, they will have had challenges, but it won't have been to the same degree. And they can out-talent a lot of teams in the East because they're incredible. I mean, they're one of the best regular season teams ever. And I think they'll be a very good postseason team. But you're right. Like, Bud has been conservative. And it's not only in terms of that. It's also, like, in terms of minute usage a lot of times. Like, he'll, you yeah, know, it's, sure. I've criticized I've criticized Steve Kerr at point, points, too, for the, some of the similar conservatism to Bud of, like, knowing what you do best and not going to it. But Kerr has done that when he felt like he had to. But it seems like he's always reluctant. Kerr will ramp those minutes up. Like, right. when it really comes down to it, yeah, he'll get those guys 45, 46 minutes because he knows that's the margins of that small. And, like, Bud, he's playing, like, 10 guys sometimes, but there's just, no. If, he, if it's game six of the conference finals, you're running a seven-man rotation, maybe eight, maybe. That's how you should be doing it. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be really, really interesting. Uh, is there anything else, anything else you want to discuss before we part ways? I was going to say with the Bucks, the guy I'm watching is Marvin Williams. Mm-hmm. To me, I think he could have a huge role for Milwaukee in the playoffs. I think a guy like that, that's the piece they didn't have last year, is that stretch big who can get on the perimeter and guard. You know, with the Lopez twins, with Ilyasova, those guys just got to drop back. Like, you cannot switch out Brooke Lopez on a guard. It's just it's not going to work. But now with Marvin Williams, he has that ability at least, you know, functionally. He's not like a great guy, but he can do it and fill a role. To me, like, Giannis at the five, Williams at the four, that's the line Milwaukee's got to go to at some point in the playoffs. Will they? I don't know. But I think that is the one that pushed them over the top if they use it. Yeah, the, there's the idea is basically they didn't have a great personnel counterpunch for if another team created problems for the Lopez twins. Like it was like, okay, if you do that, Giannis can play the five defensively. Like they can make that work, but they just 
I, I talk about this all the time. This came up with in the Lakers discussion of like, okay, you slide the other guys up. You have to fill that spot somehow. And Marvin Williams does that more capably than anybody that they had on the roster. And so that is a, a really important development for them. And now, but has to actually do it. Like we, we have no guarantee that that's going to happen. But at least now there is that lineup that makes complete sense. And they can throw kind of whoever they want in the two in the two guard spot there. It might be Dante DiVincenzo, could be a couple other options. But now you can get the three, four, five if you want to see Middleton as the three there. You can get that in a lineup that will defend well, but also will have good floor spacing. And that's really exciting. I guess speaking of floor spacing, the real question other question is like does Bud trust Bledsoe? Oh, God. How much does Bledsoe get after what happened last two years? At what point does that get pulled? Well, and that was that was my big criticism of letting Malcolm Brogdon go, was that they, I mean, Malcolm Brogdon was better than Bledsoe last year For sure. in, that, in that series. And so now it's like, oh, crap, if Bledsoe just doesn't, I mean, and remember, the stressors, especially if it's Toronto, if that's the team face. Bledsoe's going to have Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry on his ass. Like if that, and then if theoretically, if they make it through that and face the, especially if it's the Clippers, then it's, you know, bad Bev probably. Then if you, if it doesn't work, if Bledsoe just, just kind of isn't at that level offensively, defensively, I'm not particularly concerned. If he, if he gets, yeah, he if, if he's sure. not there offensively, then it just gets so much, the, the offense can bog down. Like, and that's, that's part of what Toronto did so well last year was that they made the Bucks basic and then were able to stop that well. And yeah, nobody, I would say with Bledsoe, I would say the key guys, you mentioned them, it's George Hill and it's DiVincenzo. Yeah. He could be really important to them in these playoffs. He could be. And, and so how how do they like i mean it, there's the whole old mike tyson thing of everybody has a plan until you get hit in the mouth but it's like one of the challenges of playoff basketball is you have to assume that the best opponents are going to take away what you want to do but it's how well can you handle everything else and the bucks you know not they're not they're not abysmal at that they're better now than they were getting getting marvin williams you know having a couple of center options it, but I think the guard line, I am still concerned. And so DiVincenzo can step up. George Hill can step up. But, you know, I, the phrase that I used the day it happened was losing Malcolm Brogdon could haunt the franchise. And they could very easily win the championship this year. They were the best team. But if they don't, it wouldn't surprise me if it was something like that that was a an underlying factor in what happened. Well, I, like, I'm not saying he's – it's not that he's James Harden, but there's definitely parallels in terms of the team was great without him in the regular season. They A small market team – let the third best player go, but then in the later rounds of the playoffs, that really comes back to haunt them. That's definitely a possible outcome, right? Because the mar- you, you you brought this, you used the phrase before of like the margins are so thin, and I think that's really true. And very good players aren't easy to come by. I mean, they the the Bucks benefited a lot from two way one, especially, especially, and it doesn't matter what position you play because they're they're hard to come by everywhere. And and I am really interested in how how the Bucks work as a counterpuncher this year because there are teams even in the, like if they play Philly in the second round like the first round's gonna be fine like there's obviously no concern there but in the second round like Philly Miami if it's one of those two teams probably less so if it's Indiana like they will challenge the they will try to take away what the Bucks do well and and how from a lineup standpoint from a game planning standpoint how to do that and then the wrinkle that Boston brings and this is why Milwaukee could be could be in some trouble is Milwaukee has this this specific weakness against pull up sh- pull up guard shooters 
and then um, yep. stretch bigs. Like those are the because basically it's the shots they can. Those are the shots they concede within their defense, and that works really well against ninety percent of the NBA because they don't have enough of those guys. Because if they did, then they would be way better. But Boston has. Kemba and now it looks like Jason Tatum and then they play bigs that can attack they can attack Milwaukee's system all the time and so that's another it's a defensive counterpunch but like can the Bucks and the easiest way to do that would be to play Giannis at the five and do a switching system but I, I wonder but will they do it right yeah will they actually do it yeah that's with and that's it's such a weird dynamic with the Bucks where it's not like can they do it sure I, I don't have any doubt that they can it's just will they yeah, that would be Giannis versus Celtics three. Those are some great series. The last, I guess, really was the first one was a great series. But those are some fun series. It's the third time around. Absolutely, yeah. So e- either way, I mean, there are going to be some demons in play for the Bucks in in the conference finals, assuming they make it. And I, I'm really interested in, in how that turns out. Um, but we can we can leave it there. We're still more we're we're still not a month away from the bubble, but we're still a long way from the playoffs. So hopefully, we'll talk about that when the time comes. Thanks so much for coming on. Love talking to you, man. Cool. Yeah, well, I had fun, and let's hope, you know, it's a fun talking basketball. Let's hope we're talking basketball in two months and not, you know, everything else. Thanks again to Jonathan Charks for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Ringer, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Charks, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. Love having him on, known him for such a long time, and I really enjoy how we can go in different directions. I thought the the conversation on the Mavericks in particular, a team that he knows exceedingly well, was, was really interesting. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can also check out the Real GM Radio podcast from technically last week, but really a couple of days ago with Jared Weiss. We went in-depth on the Celtics. Tatum, Brown, Hayward, everything else in between, all their young guys. You can listen to that. And if you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download every episode. That is exceedingly important with a show that doesn't come out on a specific schedule. You can also spread the word, word of mouth. If you like a specific episode or the show in general, tell other people that you that you like it and that maybe they would too. And leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player you're choosing. That's great. Whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to this show, that you can do that. Really do appreciate it. And then the most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to support our sponsors for this episode. That is Bet Online. Go to their website and use the Podcast One promo code to tell them you came from us and to get yourself an awesome sign-up bonus, which is great. Only a couple more Real GM radios until the actual bubble play starts, which is really exciting, assuming everything goes to form, which we sincerely hope that it does. I have a couple of guests probably lined up. We'll see where it goes from here. Uh, excited about that and excited about having actual basketball to talk about, of course. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is my promise. I will try to respond if I can. I don't promise that, but I, I will do my best. But I, I have them in a special place, so I always read them. And if you want to check out my other work, Dunked On, we're two days a week. We're really doing these in-depth young player scouts. So it's players who've been in the league three years or fewer and getting into how they're looking so far, giving development grades for guys that have been in the league for a little while. And my writing at The Athletic, doing my own off-season preview series, and then also a collaborative one with Seth Partnow, Dave Dufour, and Sam Vecini, which is, are a lot of fun. We The entire Delete 8 should be up now, so you can take a look at those. And then my solo one, the entire Delete 8, should be up before the start of the bubble game. So that's pretty exciting to have all that together. So yeah, just stay in touch with all that and hope you can ride it through the next couple weeks until the games get back, assuming they hold on to the normal schedule. And thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.